Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Hey, welcome to Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. And Colonel, as has kind of become the case, we have a lot to talk about in terms of current events as well as the Constitution today. Let's start with some of the current events. There is still more election intrigue going on here in America. What are your thoughts on where we stand as of today? Well, a couple of things are happening right now. For one thing, it looks like we're going to be seeing perhaps a new crackdown on coronavirus regulations and so on, including over Thanksgiving. In fact, my wife has a friend who talked to her yesterday, and this friend said that in her state that they have just put a five-person limit on the number of people that can gather for Thanksgiving and also a 12-person limit on the number of people who can gather for funerals. And so... Her friends told her that she is going to be having 12 people for Thanksgiving, and they're going to call it a funeral for the turkey. Good for them. (laughs) (laughs) I guess you got to be creative. Well, that's creative, certainly. But anyway, in regard to the elections, of course, again, as we said before, nobody is considered to be a president-elect until the Electoral College has met and the electoral votes have been counted. And so this coronation that is taking place by the media is premature. And there was a major press conference by President Trump's attorneys today in which they detailed some of what they're planning to allege in various states where they have filed lawsuits. Now, it's going to be their obligation to prove what they're saying about mistake and fraud. That's, by the way, there is another interesting thing is the media keeps saying that Trump is talking about fraud, whereas his lawyers are not making that claim in court. And there is a reason for that, that the media either doesn't understand or won't tell us. And the reason for that is that when you are contesting an election, you don't necessarily have to prove fraud. You have to prove error. And error could be either fraudulent or it could be unintentional. And if they can show error in sufficient proportion that it could have affected the outcome of the election in several of these states, that is all they need to allege, and that is a lot easier to prove than fraud. But I can only say to our listeners here, don't go along with the coronation. All they're trying to do right now is treat the election as an established fact and that President Trump is just being recalcitrant and stubborn and being a sore loser about all of this. And anyway, understand that it is important for all sides and it is important for future elections that we get this right, that all legal votes be counted, that all illegal votes not be counted, and be patient on this. Let the courts and the election boards and so on do their work And let's see where it winds up. I don't know where it's going to end up. But at any rate, the effort by the media today to try to coronate Biden as president-elect, I can only say that that is definitely premature. I can tell you this. The only only thing I haven't heard them say so far is, trust me. 
but it wouldn't surprise me if they did. They are, I, I'm a skeptic anyway because of many years of working in the media and, and I've seen the bias come through with, you know, very, very clearly over the, the last 25 years or so. And it's, it's very clear to me that there is a narrative that this is what this is the story you are supposed to believe, and we're not supposed to depart from that narrative. And those who do are called conspiracy theorists or kooks, or you know they're 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 portrayed as deranged. But I'm not even so interested in the idea that hey, it's got to be Trump who wins. As I want to know if the votes of tens of millions of people really counted for nothing because certain people, those counting the votes or those in charge of tabulating them, were gaming the system to take it whatever direction they desired. And if that's the case, we have a real problem. We have issues with the use of this Dominion software and so many other things that we definitely need to be concerned about. And again, be patient. In the meantime, much of our focus needs to be on Georgia because we have two Senate races there that will be run off in early January. And right now, the Republicans have... 50 votes in the Senate, and if they win one or two of these, they'll have 51 or 52. If they lose both of them, then it'll be 50-50 in the Senate, in which case the vice president, which could be Kamala Harris, would be the one who would be the balance of power, would cast the deciding vote, would mean then that the committee chairman and the control of the Senate would basically then be in the hands of, of Democrats. And this would enable the administration to pursue a radical agenda and get it through Congress. If they don't, then they may have to compromise more. And so if we were concerned about this radical agenda, we need to focus on Georgia. And that means if you can go down and volunteer to help, do so. If you can contribute to the campaigns there, do so, because that could be the control of the Senate, which could be the control of the nation. Anyway, let's go into the Constitution, because in all of this, we are seeing the Constitution at work. It is the Constitution that has established this Electoral College. It is the Constitution that says that the legislatures of the various states will determine how their electoral votes are going to be cast. And so what we are seeing going on right now in our election bureaus, our recounts, in our court challenges, we are seeing the Constitution at work. And remember Ben Franklin made the statement as the delegates were leaving the Constitutional Convention on September 17th of 1787, having voted to approve this Constitution and send it to Congress and then to the states, when somebody asked him, what sort of government have you given us, Dr. Franklin, a republic or a monarchy? He answered, a republic, if you can keep it. And that has been the challenge for some 233 years, keeping the republic that our founding fathers gave us. And that's why our efforts to make sure that the republic is preserved throughout this election are so important here today. But after all of this, let's look now at the Constitution that the founding fathers gave us and... We've seen all of its amendments. We've gone through these, 1 through 27. But now let's just look at the Constitution itself. It, of course, begins with a preamble. And the preamble to the Constitution is relatively short compared to many preambles. And 
Part of the reason for that, as I've suggested before, is that, in a sense, the real preamble to the Constitution is the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration is very much part of the law of the land, although many liberals would try to deny that today. There are so many things in the Declaration of Independence that they would find offensive, that our independence is based upon the laws of nature and of nature's God, that we are equal because we are created equal, that we are possessed of unalienable rights because they are given to us by the Creator, that government exists by the consent of the governed, and that we have the right to alter or abolish our government if it is destructive toward those ends. All of those principles in the Declaration of Independence, people would find offensive today. And so you might say that by the standard of the American Civil Liberties Union, the Declaration of Independence is unconstitutional because of its mentions of God. But you might say the Declaration is really the true preamble to the Constitution. The Declaration sets forth the basic ideals of the nation. The Constitution sets forth a practical means by which those ideals are going to be realized in a society of sinful and imperfect people like you and me. So when we look at it in this way, another way you can look at it is that the Declaration established the nation. The Constitution established the government. And in another sense, you could say that we were under the Articles of Confederation, and when states ratified the Constitution, they were, in a sense, seceding from the government established by the Articles of Confederation and joining this government established by the Constitution. Okay, that's probably a good spot for us to pause as we're coming up on our break here in just a moment. But uh, when we come back, I guess before we break, Colonel, if, if I can just get a clarification, there's a lot of uh, long faces out there because of the question mark, but it sounds to me like what you're saying is, for now, the Republic still stands. Even, even if there's some you know, back and forth and some friction, we're not exactly you know, done for. Am I hearing that correctly? Yes, yes. Okay, we'll take a quick break. Colonel John Eidsmull from the Foundation of Moral Law is your host. This is Constitution Classroom. As life gets back to normal and we start heading back to work, don't leave your leftover stash of toilet paper exposed to rodents. Send them packing the most humane way with Plug-In Pest Free. G'day, I'm Scott from Plug-In Pest Free, the electromagnetic device that utilises the active wiring in your home or business to keep rodents and pests away. 100% chemical free and environmentally friendly. Just plug it in, it's that simple. My strongest performer, the Pro Unit, is good for most homes and small businesses up to 4,000 square feet. Now that's fair income. Is your home or business protected? If not, order yours today at gopestfree.com. Use promo code SAVE20 for 20% off. That's gopestfree.com, promo code SAVE20. gopestfree.com, promo code SAVE20. Don't spray and regret. Plug in and forget. 
Are you tired of high cable TV rates? Sign up for Dish today and get a $500 bonus offer while supplies last. Plus, lock in your price for two years guaranteed. Call All-American Dish, your dish-authorized retailer now. 800-610-5739. 800-610-5739. That's 800-610-5739. Offers require credit qualification, 24-month commitment, early termination fee, and auto pay. Restrictions apply. Call for details. Trade pros. Whether you specialize in service or new construction, Ferguson knows firsthand how much work goes into a long day on the job, which is why we're committed to offering the products and solutions to get every job done right. With over a 1,000 locations, an unmatched selection of specialty products, tools, and supplies, our pro pickup and same or next day delivery, you can trust that doing business with Ferguson will be the easiest part of your hard day's work. Visit ferguson.com to find a counter location near you. Gold prices keep climbing and just hit an all-time high. COVID-19 and battered global economies are sending investors to the safe haven of physical gold to avoid losing value in their IRAs, 401ks, and stocks. Don't stand on the sidelines and wonder what the stock market is going to do next. Protect and grow your financial future today with a call to American Bullion, the leader in gold investments. You have valid concerns, and we have simple solutions for all needs and budgets. In fact, we specialize in first-time gold buyers as well as veterans. Find out about American Bullion's hassle-free process to transfer any portion of your IRA, 401k, or stocks into the long-term safety of a gold IRA today. Call 800-GOLD-IRA and ask for our free gold guide. That's 800-465-3472. 800-GOLD-IRA. Grow your financial future with the rising value of physical gold and protect yourself during this worldwide crisis. Call the leader, American Bullion. 800-GOLD-IRA. Once again, welcome back to Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And Colonel, I'm grateful that we have you to draw upon as a resource as we navigate uh, the aftermath of the 2020 election and, and what lies ahead. And thank goodness for the Constitution and the framework and rules and, and the guide that it provides as well. So we don't have to just kind of make this up as we go along. I'm, I'm, I'm taking comfort in this and actually very grateful for the foresight of those who came long before us. And their foresight is what gets us through difficult times like the present. And, well, we have this idea today by some that this is a living constitution, by which they mean a constitution that can be reinterpreted and that grows and evolves in a Darwinian sense from one generation to the next, or one generation of judges to the next, I should say, that we nevertheless do see the workings of the Constitution being fulfilled in courts every day as we see criminal trials taking place with the privilege against self-incrimination, self-protection against search and seizure, the right of representation, jury trial, and so on. We're seeing it in these lawsuits that are being filed about the election. And so, yes, the Constitution is still here. Our republic has been eroded to some extent. But, yes, I would say we still do have a constitutional republic. And I think if Ben Franklin were to see what's going on today, he'd be concerned about some things. But I think he'd be pleased to know that this republic has endured for some 233 years. And we thank him for his part in making that happen. But 
Let's take a look now at the preamble to the Constitution. As we said, it's a short preamble, but it is a significant preamble. And it begins by saying, we, the people of the United States. And again, the question we've asked before, is this a Constitution adopted by the states or by the people? The answer is, it is a bit of both. We, the people, but the people of the United States, they were selected to come to the convention by their respective states. They voted as states at the convention, each state casting one vote after the Constitution was approved and then went to Congress and Congress sent it to the states for ratification. The states ratified by one by one in their state ratifying conventions. So you can say that, yes, it is partly a government of the people and partly a government of the states. And Understanding both, I think, is significant. But when we say, we the people, that demonstrates that the framers did believe, as the Declaration says, that governmental power is derived from the consent of the governed. And it shows that the framers understood the covenantal or contractual nature of governmental authority. This is a concept that they get in part from the Bible but a concept that they also get to a Christian man by the name of John Locke. John Locke talked about governmental contract as being social contract and saw initially the pact or paction, as he calls it, that God made with Noah after the flood as being the basis for the contract for government. But as he thought, we the people get together and the in a state of nature, as he put it, there is no government, and people can do whatever they want, but then they aren't really free because people can infringe on each other's rights. So we get together, and we agree to establish a government and to give that government certain powers. And John Locke thought that government has only the power that we, the people, delegate to it and no others, and government cannot act in excess of the powers that we, the people, have delegated to it. Well, the beginning of the preamble certainly shows the extent to which our founding fathers accepted the ideas of John Locke. In fact, when you look to where they got their ideas, there was a study that was done back in the 1980s by two political science professors, Dr. Donald Lutz and Dr. Charles Holloman, and they had surveyed thousands of writings of American political figures from 1760 to 1805 to identify quotations and see where they got their ideas. And they found that about 34% of all quotations found in the Founding Fathers' writings were from the Bible. So that was their major source. Interestingly, the book of the Bible they quoted more than any other was Deuteronomy. And when you exclude the Bible and just look to the human authors, we find that they quoted, first of all, Baron Montesquieu of France, second, Sir William Blackstone of England, and third, John Locke. And so the idea of John Locke and that this is a government of contract, that certainly is very central to their thinking of the way government is established. We, the people, form government. And where do we get the authority to form government? Well, that authority comes from God. In fact, some will question, well, can we say that it's from the people, and isn't that a humanistic concept? Isn't that contrary to the principle of divine law? No, it is God 
who gives people the authority to establish their government. In fact, the motto of the state of South Dakota, where I was born, makes this very clear. A motto was drafted by a pastor, by the way. And that motto is, under God, the people rule. God gives us the authority to draft our articles of government, and we do so by authority to him. And so government authority comes from God to the people to government officials. And so there we see the nature of governmental authority. And then we go on in the preamble to see the purposes of government with these phrase in order to. And now we see six basic purposes for which government is established. First of these is to form a more perfect union. And granted, under the Articles of Confederation, there had been a lot of disunity. Under the Articles of Confederation, government was quite limited in what it could do, and states were quarreling among themselves, so this would form a more perfect union. To establish justice is the second purpose, and that is to set up an orderly and a fair court system. There was no federal court system under the Articles of Confederation, and if the Continental Congress were to pass a law, it had to enforce that law through the state legislatures and the state courts. There were no federal courts. Some of us might see that as a good thing in some ways, but it certainly was a, a problem in getting things done. Also, when they speak about justice, that's a recognition that there is such a thing as, object, uh, as, as justice, meaning that they recognize that there is a fixed, absolute standard of right and wrong which constitutes justice. Third, to ensure domestic tranquility. And this had been a problem under the Articles of Confederation. There was Shays Rebellion and Massachusetts and several other things. The Shays Rebellion could probably be described more as a riot rather than a full-scale rebellion. But at any rate, there was concern that under the Articles, government wasn't strong enough to keep law and order. And so to ensure domestic tranquility was one of the reasons. And that could also be tranquility among the states, too, that there were sometimes various problems with states threatening each other and being unsure of the borders between each other. And so this would have the effect of giving a stronger central government, but still power to the states. And so domestic tranquility could be preserved. I love the fact that you have just outlined for us the correct pecking order and flow of political power. Because a person, let's just say a person who, I don't know, relies on CNN or one of the other mass media sources to get their understanding of how power flows in government would probably have a very different impression. Well, no, our rights are what government tells us they are, and government tells us what it's supposed to do and what it isn't supposed to do. You have explained beautifully, Colonel, how uh, we cannot allow that kind of approach to, to take place and still be true to the system given us by the founders. Okay, we'll take a quick break. We'll be back with Colonel Eidsmo on the Constitution Classroom right after this.
Hey, welcome back to Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, you are explaining the purpose behind the way the Constitution was was put together. And I guess we, we have a few more explanations of why the founders set it up the way that they did. Well, let's look at the in order to part of the preamble here where it sets forth six purposes of government. And you might want to think about these and just ask, are any of these illegitimate or do you think of any additional purposes that they didn't think about here? We've already seen to form a more perfect union, to establish justice, to ensure domestic tranquility. But now we have three more. And first of these, the fourth is, is to provide for the common defense. Now, the founding fathers of this nation, the delegates to the Constitutional Convention, believed in a strong national defense. They believed that the best way to promote that was through state militias, and they were rather skeptical about standing armies, as we're going to see when we get further into Article One of the Constitution. But they had a problem in providing for defense under the Articles of Confederation, because under the Articles of Confederation, there was no provision for federal taxes. That sounds like a great thing, but it did create a problem that in order for the federal government to raise money for defense or for any other purpose, they had to do it by what they called requisitions. Now, requisitions is just a legal-sounding word meaning requests. They'd have to request money from the states. And let's just suppose that when the Continental Congress meets, that they determine based upon General Washington's request for funds, they determined that the Army needs $1 million this year. And that sounds awfully low by today's standards, but in those days, that was a lot of money. But the Army needs $1 million this year in order to carry on this war for independence. And so the Continental Congress appropriates $1 million to George Washington for the Army. Now, what the President of the Continental Congress has to do is to write a letter to each of the 13 state governors telling them the Continental Congress has appropriated $1 million for the purpose of national defense and North Carolina, we believe your fair share of this would be $100,000, and we would appreciate it if you would contribute. Well, a few weeks later, the governor of North Carolina would get that letter from the president of the Continental Congress, and when the legislature came into session, he would read the letter to them, and he might say to the North Carolina legislature, well, I think General Washington and the boys up there at Valley Forge are doing a great job and making some great sacrifices. And I think we ought to support them. They've requested $100,000 from us. And after we've appropriated our budget, if we have any money left over, I think we ought to send it to them. Well, with the patriotic fervor for the war and for independence, that got us through, but just barely. And after the war was over, in about 1781, although the peace treaty wasn't really signed until 1783, for the next several years, we didn't have that war factor to unite us. And so 
it was even more difficult for the Congress to raise funds after that. And so providing for the common defense and also having a means of taxation to raise money for federal purposes, that was one thing that seemed necessary. And now a fifth, to promote the general welfare. Now we're going to see that phrase repeated again, just like we're going to see that phrase provided to the common defense repeated again, as we get to Article 1, Section 8, of the powers that are delegated to Congress. And so let's note here that the preamble does not delegate any powers. It just states purposes. It could be cited by the courts from time to time as to what a purpose for the federal government was, but no powers are delegated. But just notice that phrase, promote the general welfare. That phrase, general welfare, is a limiting power as well as a granting power. Welfare means, obviously, the well-being of the people, but the general welfare means of the people as a whole, as against the specific welfare of particular regions or individuals or socioeconomic groups. We're going to see where that becomes much more important as we get to Article 1 and Section 8. And then, finally, to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Several things about that last phrase, to secure the blessings of liberty. First of all, it shows that the framers were concerned about liberty. That was the primary concern of theirs. Secondly, it shows that they understood that liberty came from a higher source than man. A blessing is something that comes from somebody above us. Blessings don't come from our equals. It comes from somebody above us. And so this shows that they understood that liberty was a blessing from God. And it next shows when it says for ourselves and for our posterity that they understood the Constitution to be a permanent document, a Constitution for the ages, as John Marshall would say at one point. And it shows that they did have concern for future generations. And some have even suggested that for ourselves and our posterity may even imply a concern for the unborn. And so with these six purposes in mind, again, let's review them, to form a more perfect union, to establish justice, to ensure domestic tranquility, to provide for the common defense, to promote the general welfare, and to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, Those are the basic purposes for which the Constitution was established. And with that purpose in mind, they say, we do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Notice again, this is for the United States, but it's also for the states, states and United States. And so the preamble simply states the purposes for which government is established It grants no powers. We're going to see those powers granted in other provisions, particularly as we get to Article 1, and especially in Article 1, Section 8. And as we say again, it is brief, because the basic ideals of the nation are established by the Declaration of Independence. The Constitution is the practical means of realizing those ideals in a society of sinful and imperfect people like you and me. Well, now we go to Article 1, and in Article 1, we're going to see 
the establishment of the legislative power. We have essentially three different kinds of governmental power here, legislative, executive, and judicial. And this has been recognized in ancient times. It's even recognized in the Bible. In fact, Isaiah says, the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. Think of those three. The Lord is our judge, judicial power. The Lord is our lawgiver, legislative power. The Lord is our king, executive power. Three branches of government, three functions of government, all put together right there in the book of Isaiah. Now, this was recognized in ancient times, but the idea of separating the powers of government into three separate branches was not always recognized. Montesquieu recognizes this in the spirit of the laws. Blackstone likewise recognizes this, although even Blackstone does not have a clear separation between the judicial and the other branches. Blackstone sees a clear separation between the legislative, meaning parliament, and the executive, meaning the king, but doesn't really neatly separate the judicial from those. In fact, it's been said that in the 16 and 1700s in England, the battle for power was between the legislative, that is parliament, and the executive, that is king. Whereas in the United States, the battle has been between the legislative on the one hand and the judicial power on the other. And so there's something I'd like us to think over here a little bit as we look to Article 1, and that is the question about why we designate this branch of government and why we say legislative power shall vest in one branch of government, a Congress, and then we'll go on to ask why that Congress will have two houses, a House of Representatives and a Senate. I'm getting the impression from what you're saying, Colonel, that uh, this wasn't just a roll of the dice or uh, the founders, when they set this up, weren't just, uh, you know, doing it off the cuff. That sounds like there was a great deal of thought and, uh, and intention behind the way they structured this. We'll continue our discussion just the other side of these messages. This is Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Thinking about life insurance? What if you could make one free phone call and learn your best price from nearly a dozen highly rated price competitive companies? Well, that's exactly what happens when you call SelectQuote Life. For example, George is 40. He was getting sky-high quotes from other companies because he takes meds to control his blood pressure. But when I shopped around, I found him a 10-year, $500,000 policy for under $25 a month. I'm SelectQuote agent Dan Savino. And believe me, if SelectQuote isn't shopping for your life insurance, you're probably paying too much. For a free quote, call 800-523-3771. That's 800-523-3771. 800-523-3771. Or go to SelectQuote.com. Since 1985, we shop, you save. Get full details on the example policy at SelectQuote.com commercials. Your price could vary depending on your health, issuing company, and other factors. Not available in all states. 
me why Relief Factor is so successful in lowering or eliminating pain. I'm often asked that question. Pete and Seth Talbot, the father and son founders of Relief Factor, tell me they believe our bodies were designed to heal. The doctors who formulated Relief Factor selected the four best ingredients, 100% drug-free ingredients that each help your body deal with inflammation. Order the three-week quick start now. Discount it to only $19.95 to see if it will work for you too. Call 800 500 ReliefFactor.com. You know what stinks? Overpaying for things, and that includes your cell phone bill. That's why every day people are switching to Pure Talk USA. You get the exact same coverage as the larger carriers, but at half the cost, with no contract and no excessive fees. Get unlimited talk, text, and two gigs of data, all for just $20 a month. The average person saves $400 a year. Go to puretalkusa.com, enter the promo code HALFOFF, and you'll save 50% off your first month. That's puretalkusa.com, promo code HALFOFF. Pure Talk USA, simply smarter wireless. You've heard me talking about my pillow for three years, folks. It's the truth. I get the best sleep of my life with a my pillow. You can do it too. 60 day money back guarantee, 10 year warranty made in the USA. You'll sleep well or you'll get your money back. Go to mypillow.com, click on the radio listener special, use my promo code USA, get two my pillow premium pillows for the price of one, or call 1 800 951 8175. Get the best sleep of your life and do it now. Balance of nature's fruits and vegetables in a capsule, changing the world one life at a time. When I first switched over, because I stopped taking the other supplements I was taking and switched over all the way to Balance of Nature, I really noticed a huge difference. It was amazing. Like better sleep, better attention, better energy. It was just really, really great. Balance of Nature is now offering 35% off on any new preferred order. Go to balanceofnature.com today and use discount code USA. Welcome back to Constitution Classroom. Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law is your host. And if you wanted to learn the nuts and bolts of the Constitution, this is a great episode for you to understand why it was set up the way it was. Um, Colonel, we are, we're talking about the, the legislative branch in particular, I believe, in this segment. Where do you want to take it from here? Well, as you brought out at the close of our last session, this was a matter of very careful thought by the Founding Fathers. James Madison, who was one of the most influential, some even call him the father of the Constitution, made the statement that every word of it, that is, every word of the Constitution, decides a question of power and liberty. And for that reason, we need to look at these words very carefully. But we see this Congress established as a legislative body with two houses. Now, first of all, when it says that legislative power shall vest, the word vest means to remain permanently. And so we have a principle here that when we give power, when the people have given power, legislative power to Congress, Congress may not redelegate that power to another branch. In other words, Congress can't just simply say, okay, Social Security Administration or Internal Revenue Service or OSHA or whatever other body you might be talking about here, you go ahead and make the rules, do whatever you want. They can't simply delegate it like that because the people have given that power to Congress. Now, we do see that Congress can delegate rulemaking authority. And, for example, with the Internal Revenue Service, Congress passes the Internal Revenue Code and the IRS then makes regulations 
but those regulations have to be consistent with the code. And rulemaking authority will be upheld as constitutional, provided the legislative branch has delegated it with reasonably clear criteria or guidelines. And if the guidelines are vague, that delegation will be struck down. If the IRS has passed a regulation that is inconsistent with the guidelines given in the Internal Revenue Code, that will be struck down. But power is to vest, that is, permanently remain in Congress. And this means that it's going to be in two houses of Congress. And why do we have two houses of Congress? Well, there are a number of reasons. There is a story told that, and this goes back to a long, long time ago. I was remember being told this in one of my classes when I was in elementary school, that there was a conversation between George Washington and Thomas Jefferson when Jefferson, who had not been at the convention, came back and then served as Secretary of State. And anyway, Jefferson, not having been president of the convention, asked Washington, why is it we have two houses of Congress? And Washington asked Jefferson, well, why do you pour your tea between your cup and your saucer? And Jefferson answered, well, to cool it and to soothe it. And Washington answered, that's why we pour legislation back and forth between the House and the Senate, to cool it and to soothe it. Now, whether that conversation ever actually took place, nobody seems to be able to document that it actually happened. But the principle is a sound principle, that one of the reasons for having two houses is to slow down hasty legislation. If you've ever tried to get a bill through your state legislature, you know how difficult that is. First of all, you get a bill drafted, and then you take it to a legislative reference service, and they suggest all sorts of changes, some of which you probably don't like. You get legislative sponsors, and then it goes before a committee, and there in that committee, some crotchety old senator is going to stand up and raise an objection, and you're irritated. This is slowing things down, but you also understand he really does have a point. And somebody asks, well, how much is this going to get cost? So it's referred to the Finance Committee and back and forth. Finally, you get something passed by one house. Then it has to go to the other house. They may pass an entirely different version, and then you have to compromise back and forth to get a final version, and then it goes to the governor for signature and possible veto there. Well, in all of that process, hopefully the benefit of all of this is that flaws in that legislation will be discovered because it is certainly better that we slow down the process and discover those flaws before the bill is passed than afterwards because it's a lot easier to get it done beforehand than to try to get it worked out afterward. The idea of two houses of Congress was originally proposed by Roger Sherman. Now, Roger Sherman was a delegate to the convention from Connecticut. He was described as an old Puritan, as an elder in the church that is pastored by Jonathan Edwards, Jr., that he even preached sermons from time to time. He started life as a school teacher, not as a school teacher, as a shoemaker, and then became a lawyer and a judge and a legislator and so on. But spoke at the convention quite frequently. It was said of him that he had never said a foolish thing in his entire life, 
that said of him also that he was no orator, but that no person in the entire Constitutional Convention was more persuasive than he was because of the simple common sense of the way he made his arguments. Sherman had suggested two houses for the Continental Congress to the Articles of Confederation. His suggestion was not approved there, but it was approved at the Constitutional Convention because we had a quarrel there. The quarrel was between the larger states that wanted the Congress to be apportioned according to the population and the smaller states who said all states should be represented equally. And so the idea that we'll have two states or two houses, one in which each state will be equal and the other in which it'll be apportioned by population. That was the Sherman Compromise, or some called it the Connecticut Compromise, that they finally approved. Another parallel here is to the English Parliament. And there in the English Parliament, of course, you have the House of Commons, which was elected by the people, and the House of Lords, which were appointed. Now, they're not exactly the same, because the House of Lords was quite a bit different from our United States Senate. The House of Lords was a body of nobility. It was a body that wasn't just a bunch of rich nobles that sat around drinking and so on, but rather they would serve on royal commissions and do a lot of work like that. They would be appointed based on merit, and they functioned sort of like a Supreme Court as well. So it's you can't really say there's a direct parallel between the United States Senate and the English House of Lords, but there is something of a parallel. Anyway, the idea here is that these two houses have to concur before any bill becomes law. There are a few exceptions to that. And one thing that we'll talk about when we meet again, I don't think we're going to have time to get into this right now, but let's think about it for a moment. Let's say that you are a Republican, and let's say that you could have control of one House of Congress, but not both. Which would you prefer to control, the Senate or the House of Representatives? Brian, what do you think? I would take the House of Representatives. And why is that? Because they hold the purse strings, and with the purse strings, they would uh, they would have the ability to ultimately have greater control. Okay, they hold the purse strings, as you say, and that is correct. The that is, both of them really have some control over the purse strings, but all bills for taxes, bills to originate revenue, have to originate in the House. That's according to Article 7 of the Constitution, that revenue bills originate in the House. And the reason for this is that it is in the House. The House is elected by the people. The states don't pay taxes. The people pay taxes. And so the House that represents the people should be the House that originates taxes. Of course, the Senate has to go along with this. But Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts, for example, had said taxes and representation are strongly associated in the minds of the people, and they will not agree that any but their immediate representatives shall meddle with their persons. Again, we need to note that originally and until 1913, the, with the 17th Amendment that we've already talked about, the Senate was not elected by the people. The Senate was chosen by the state legislatures. Ben Franklin said, it was always of importance that the people should know who had disposal of their money and how it had been disposed of. It was a maxim that those who feel can best judge. And others 
were very strongly of the opinion that because the House was elected by the people, they should originate all taxes, which is the way it was in England as well. In England, all taxes had to originate in the House of Commons, and so it's the same here. Another power that the Congress, that the House has, is that the House originates impeachments. The Senate, of course, has to concur, but there are other powers that the Senate has that the House doesn't. We'll talk about those next week. Okay, fascinating exposition on the Constitution. I feel better informed, and Colonel, I've been studying this for a long time, so I'm very grateful to have access to this resource. I would remind our listeners, you can access the complete archives of Constitution Classroom at lovingliberty.net. Plan on spending some time, learn some things, and, and then step up and defend our incredible Constitution. We'll see you back here next week.